prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's what the songwriter wrote, and it resonates in all of our hearts, because we've all felt it. We all know it to be true at times. And if you have been saved for any length of time, you have discovered that it is not easy to maintain a fervent, warm-hearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ at all times. It's far too easy to drift into cold-heartedness and loss of fervent love and labors for the Lord. And this, I remind you, can happen in the midst of faithful church attendance, in the midst of regular Bible reading, even in the midst of regular times of prayer. And therefore, we need to understand what is the answer to this dilemma that touches the human condition of all of the children of God. And Peter provides a great deal of solid help in our section for today in 1 Peter chapter 4, actually in verses 7 through 11, though we're only going to look at verses 7 and 8 as our text for today. But in verse 7, Peter tells us how to maintain a vital relationship with God, and in verses 8 through 11, how to maintain a vital relationship with our fellow believers. Today in verses 7 and 8, we're going to take up three ingredients that are necessary to maintain vital Christianity in a sinful world and in the hearts of redeemed sinners, because the problem is certainly not entirely with the world in which we live. In fact, it is more related to who we are as fallen sons of Adam. And so we read in 1 Peter 4, 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And so here are three ingredients to maintain vital Christianity in a sinful world. The first two are directed toward God, and the third one is directed toward men. And what are they? They are, number one, keep your eyes upon the consummation. Number two, keep your knees bent in prayer. And number three, keep your heart warm toward others. First of all, keep your eyes upon the consummation. Peter says, but the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. This is the language of consummation. The end. The end of all things is at hand. The New Testament often refers to the end of time in various ways. I could give you a couple of places. Romans 13.11 says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And that's always true. It was true in the first century, and that's still true today. And consider this well-known text in Hebrews 10:25: Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Faithfulness to the assembly of the saints and to our interaction with and relationship with the people of God 
so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. It is all the more important that we be faithful in the light of that. And the writer of Hebrews said that in the first century, and here we are in the 21st century. The Bible continually reminds us that we, as New Covenant believers, are living in the last days. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Writing again in the first century, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, We know that upon us, New Covenant believers, In that first century, the end of the ages have come. And how about the well-known opening of Hebrews, the epistle to Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. In these last days. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that because the way some people treat the subject of the last days, it is as if the last days are relatively recent. They've just come upon us. And we are living in the last days where our grandfathers and great-grandfathers were not. But that's not the picture that we have in the Bible. The Bible demonstrates for us that ever since Christ came and ushered in the new covenant, we have been living in the last days. God's people, in fact the world at large, has been living in the last days for nearly 2,000 years now. And so this... In time is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That phrase, at hand, in the Greek is used in some places for that which is merely hours away. We read in Matthew twenty-six forty-five. Then Jesus came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The hour is at hand. Hours at the most, perhaps only minutes away from the time that Christ spoke that. The hour is at hand. And using the same language, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. And so what picture we get here is that the full and final redemption that was secured in Jesus Christ by his coming and dying upon the cross is now reaching its climax. We will never know when the last one of God's elect children shall be saved, but the return of Christ could come at any time. And the end is upon us. The end is at hand, the language of consummation. Furthermore, I notice that this is the language of completeness, for Peter is careful to emphasize all things are at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And in the Greek, the all things comes more forward, and that emphasizes it. It's very emphatic. All things are at hand. There is nothing that needs to be accomplished before the end comes, is what Peter is saying. 
And therefore, it is the language of imminence, at hand, near, the consummation. All things are very near. It is upon us. It is imminent. It is approaching. It is drawing near. It is pending. And furthermore, this is the language of connection because you see that little word, but, at the beginning of verse 7, that is, in our translation, translated as a contrasting conjunction, but a mild one. Allah would be the stronger one. But that word is also sometimes translated as a connective conjunction. It can be and or a number of things. And probably here, the best way to render it would be moreover. Moreover, the end of all things is at hand. And that, of course, connects with what has gone before, and especially that reference to the day of judgment in verse 5, where Peter says, They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Moreover, the end of all things is at hand. So let's consider the implications of what Peter is telling us. This certainly should help shape our understanding of the end times, to recognize that we are living in the end times right now, the end times which began with the coming of Christ. But this is to know that all things necessary to bring to consummation God's plan of redemption have occurred. That is, all things except whatever in the mind of God pertains to his timetable, for he knows the appointed time, and to how many more he plans to bring into the kingdom of God. But as far as we are concerned, as far as what we can know, as far as what has been revealed to us in the word of God, there is nothing that needs to be accomplished before the consummation of all things, before the end of times. It's already here. It's around the corner. I recently read one commentator who said something like this, and this is a common sentiment among some people. He said, now before the Lord returns, the gospel has to go into all the world, and since there are still many people who have never heard of Christ, the Lord can't come yet. That's not what the Bible says. Whatever your understanding is of the gospel going to the ends of the world, you're going to have to adjust it in the light of many statements that tell us that the consummation is at hand. We need to think in terms of the Lord's return being any moment, right around the corner. That's what our understanding of end times needs to be. Our expectation of Christ's return should be an imminent expectation and an understanding that nothing else needs to occur, and therefore we need to be ready at any moment. Our lives need to be lived in the light of this truth. We need to live every day with the thought, this may be the day the Lord comes. This may be the day when I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And if we would truly do that, just think what that would do to help us maintain a more vital relationship with Christ. We're talking about three ingredients to help us maintain vital, warm-hearted devotion to Christ and fervent Christianity. And here's one that is very, very important, and that is to keep the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ before us at all times. And every day when you get up, Say, this is the day that the Lord may come. 
and live in the light of that all day long. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want the Lord to catch you doing when he returns. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want to be caught so that you didn't have time to get that confessed and made right before the Lord returns. Live every moment in the light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes upon the final consummation. Number two, keep your knees bent in prayer. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Notice the priority of prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, and what might we have expected Peter to put after that word, therefore? Having just told us that the end of all things could happen at any moment, there's nothing that must happen before the return of Jesus Christ, and therefore we should be ready at all times. He might come today, therefore what? Therefore, you might expect him to say, get busy witnessing to as many people as you can. And of course, that wouldn't be bad advice at all. That that would certainly be God-honoring and biblical, and would many in many ways, seem to be entirely appropriate here. But that's not what Peter says. You might have expected Peter to say, similar to what I said a moment ago, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be sure that all of your sins are confessed and that you live every minute of today in the expectation of Christ's near return. And that certainly would be good advice. It certainly would be biblical and God-honoring. But notice what Peter says, and by saying this puts such high priority upon prayer. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's what I want you to to do in the light of this above everything else. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And Peter indicates that proper prayer requires a certain degree of preparation. He doesn't just say, therefore, pray, but he says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. It's important to pray, but it's important to pray in the right way. It's important to pray, but it's important to pray in a certain frame of mind with a certain understanding. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. And these words, translated in my Bible, serious and watchful, are two very similar words in the Greek language. They do have slight differences in their nuance of meaning, but they're they're very much alike in many ways. First of all, be serious. It's a word that means be sane, clear-minded, be of sound judgment. It's used in Mark chapter 5 of the maniac of Gadara, out of whom Christ cast that legion of devils, And the people came to their amazement and found him clothed and seated in what? In his right mind. In his right mind. For the first time in many a year, he was actually thinking properly. He was sane. He was in control of his faculties. He was in control of his mind. He was clear-minded of sound judgment. And that's what this means. Be clear-minded. Be in your right mind. No wrong views about God. No wrong views about yourself. 
No wrong views about the truth of God's word. Not controlled by your emotions. Not controlled by your passions. But rather controlled by a clear thinking process. A serious-minded approach to life. An ability to understand things as they truly are. And to analyze things according to truth. And that way you should approach this matter of prayer. Guard your mind. Keep it clear so that you can be able to pray in the way that you ought to pray. Be serious and be watchful in your prayers. The word be watchful means self-controlled or literally to be sober, not to be intoxicated. A related word, cognate word, is used in Ephesians 5.18, which tells us, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled by the Spirit of God. Be clear-minded. Be be, uh, sober. Be thinking properly. Be thinking the way the Spirit of God would direct you to think. Be thinking in channels that reflect the truth that God has revealed in His Word. Be watchful. Be alert. Be in full possession of your faculties. Don't be distracted by events to the extent that you ignore your responsibilities. We are aware that there have been times in the past when people who were very much focused upon the imminent return of Jesus Christ, thought they had figured out when he was going to come, and they dropped everything to wait for his return. Sold their businesses, their houses, they liquidated everything, some even dressed in white robes, and went out upon a hill and waited for Christ to return, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And when he didn't come, they had no houses left, had no businesses left. They had neglected their jobs. They had neglected their families. They had neglected their normal temporal responsibilities. And now they were far worse off than before. The doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ doesn't make Christians worse off in the light of it. It makes Christians better in the light of it. And we never get so caught up in last day frenziedness that we fail to fulfill our responsibilities. In fact, surely we have learned by now that we don't dare set any dates. There was quite a flurry of that back in the 70s and And actually, at every generation, there's always somebody who seems to be setting dates, usually carefully not to exactly set the date, but just to say, it's not going to be exactly this time, but very close to this time, around in this period, just enough so that you can set a date without exactly setting a date. Some people actually have set dates, really. Uh, in, In my lifetime, I've actually seen people who pinpointed a calendar day and said the Lord is going to return on this particular day and have published books to that effect. Others haven't been quite that precise, but they've said, surely the Lord is going to return in the decade of the 70s or the 80s. Everything, I've studied the prophecy. I've got it all figured out. The Lord is coming. I've got books on my shelf that that, uh, read in that fashion. The Lord has got to come by this time. He must. And now... The 80s turn into the 90s, and the 90s turn into the 2000s, and here we are in 
2009 and the Lord hasn't returned. And that's not because he's not returning. Oh, you can be sure he's going to return. But it's because he has told us not to set dates. And whenever anybody sets a date, you know what I think in my mind? I don't know when the Lord's coming, but I'm pretty sure when he's not coming. He's not coming on that date. Because he told us not to do that. So he's certainly not going to fulfill a false prophet and a disobedient servant of his. So we are to be sober-minded. The idea is to be rational, alert, in full possession of our faculties, not distracted by events, not ignoring our responsibilities. We are to, as the Bible tells us, as Christ himself told us, to occupy until he comes. That is, to to continue fulfilling our earthly responsibilities right up until the time he comes. And yet all the while we're doing that with an eye toward the coming of Christ. Like the builders in Nehemiah's day with, with one hand on the sword and one hand on the trowel. I don't know which hand had which one. But anyway, they were working and watching, watching for the enemy. And that's the way that we are to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be working steadily, faithfully, without distraction, even while in our minds we recognize that the Lord may come. We, we kind of have our ears cocked toward the trumpet sound at all, at all times. The question is, are both of these verbs attached to prayer or is only the second one? In verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious... And watchful in your prayers. And it all depends, of course, upon punctuation. And in the Greek Testament, there is no punctuation. And so it can be, it can be punctuated either way. And some have thought that the first one is sort of a general admonition that applies to all of life. And the second one is a specific admonition that applies to prayer. In other words, in the light of the coming of Christ and the day of consummation and the judgment of the world, and the judgment seat of Christ, and all of these things that are wrapped up in that first statement, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious. Be of sound judgment. Be clear-minded. Have right views of God and self and sin and truth, and, and be controlled by truth and not by your emotions and passions, and this is the way you should live your life. And in regard to prayer, be watchful, be self-controlled, be sober. Don't be distracted by events and ignore responsibilities. Well, whichever way it is, whether both of these verbs are applied to prayer or only the second one, since they are so similar as to their meaning, both of them help us to understand how to pray effectively. Prayer is a priority, and we need to learn to pray Effectively, and this is telling us something about preparation for prayer. We've got to be prepared mentally. That might be the last thing the 21st century Christians would be inclined to say when they're asked, how do you prepare yourself for prayer? You might have thought of a lot of other things, but the Bible says you need to prepare yourself in your mind. You need to prepare yourself in your thinking processes. You need to prepare yourself in your intellect if you're going to be able to pray properly. Now, we learn a number of things, therefore, in this short phrase about the nature of prayer. 
But the end of all things is his hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Prayers, you'll notice, is plural. The first thing we note is that Peter talks as if prayer is the normal expected activity for Christians on a regular basis. Prayers. In other words, your multiple prayers. Your regular times of prayer. In fact, that plural might refer to all kinds of prayer, all the different kinds of prayer that you are engaged in. In other words, in your private prayers, in your family prayers, in your corporate prayers, when you pray with the church. And all of these, be serious and watchful. Surely we should understand the importance of corporate prayer meetings. The Bible often talks about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ coming together to pray. We need to pray corporately as well as privately and in our families, in our homes. It is one of the obvious spiritual weaknesses of 21st century churches that many churches have no regular prayer meeting, no scheduled time for prayer, no time where the church is called together corporately as a body to pray. But we ought to be praying corporately as well as privately in in our homes. And not only do churches need to schedule such times, but the members of the church need to participate in such times. We ought to come together eagerly to pray corporately, even as we ought to be eager to pray privately and eager to pray with our families. Furthermore, Peter suggests to us that prayer is a demanding exercise. We can be easily distracted, and prayer can be all too easily neglected. And that's why he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. If you aren't intentional and serious about praying, you probably won't get it done. In addition, he seems to also be telling us that it is proper to pray in inappropriate ways. Prayer can be misunderstood and wrongly practiced. For some people, prayer is primarily an emotional response to God. But Peter indicates that it is primarily an intellectual embrace of God in prayer. We must engage the mind the intellect, the thinking process, if we're going to pray properly. Prayer evidently is related to the first commandment, to the love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and souls and what? And mind and strength. You can't love the Lord properly unless you are engaging your thinking processes, your intellectual faculties in loving God. We sometimes remind ourselves of that in our hymns of praise to God, that these are not simply supposed to be something that carries us along emotionally to God, but we are to be thinking serious thoughts, serious truth, and expressing those to God, but we need to be apprehending them in our minds even as we are singing them in praise to God. To sing praises to God properly very much requires intellectual activity. If you're too lazy to engage the mind in your singing, in your corporate praising of God, then you are going to miss a great deal. You can't really praise God properly apart from 
the engagement of your intellect. You can't really pray to God properly without the engagement of your intellect. Our minds are going to have to be active in prayer. And they're going to have to be healthy, spiritually healthy, in order to pray. We're going to have to have Bible-controlled minds. Minds that are shaped by the Word of God. We are going to need to know God as He has revealed Himself, not according to whatever thoughts we may have about Him that have arisen from within us or have been absorbed from the world around us, but we need to know God as He truly is, revealed in His Word, if we're going to approach that God properly in prayer. We have to know who it is that we are going to. And we have to understand His will, because as we know, a great part of prayer is yielding our will to God's will and reshaping our thoughts according to what He has revealed His will to be. And far too many times we concentrate too much upon the will of God we don't know and don't realize that a great deal of prayer is to engage the mind with the will of God that we do know. The picture of prayer that Peter paints here is that prayer brings the concerns of life to the touchstone of God's word. That's what we do in prayer. We bring personally the concerns of our lives before the throne of grace, but always bringing them to the touchstone of God's word. And in that way, we pray appropriately and we pray effectively. I have this need. I have this concern. Lord, I lay it before you and I remember that you said this in your word about it. And we, we actually are thinking, in a sense, thinking out loud to God as we are joining together what we have learned in his word that relates to this situation and what we know our need to be. And in prayer, we bring those things together in greater clarity And we present that before the throne of God and we appeal to God according to his revealed will. And that is effective prayer. That is powerful prayer. That is God-honoring prayer. That is serious and watchful prayer. And that kind of prayer is essential for maintaining a vital relationship with God. Don't forget what we're talking about. How to maintain warm-hearted devotion. Toward Christ. And two things that relate to God and a third that relates to man. And the first one toward God is to keep our eye upon the consummation and live every day with that in mind. The second one is to keep our knees bent in prayer. And not just any prayer, but this kind of prayer that Peter is describing for us here. And that will go a long ways toward keeping us from wandering. Prone to wander? Yes, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But how do we stop that? Here's my heart, O Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Well, we do that by living in the light of Christ's second return and by this watchful, active engagement with God in prayer based upon the truth of his word. But then there's a third ingredient, and that relates to us and those around us, to our fellow believers. 
Because we read in verse 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Keep your heart warm toward others. That's the third ingredient. And here we learn the priority of love. Even as we learned in the previous verse, the priority of prayer, so in this verse we learn the priority of love. Above all things. Does that mean even above prayer and above keeping your mind upon the second coming of Christ? No, that above all things is evidently introducing the next section, verses 8 through 11, that have a series of instructions that deal with our relationship with men. The first one is to love one another, and the second one is to be hospitable to one another, and the third one is to minister spiritual gifts to one another, to speak if that's our gift, to minister if that's our gift. We'll get into those later. And all of these things are important and vital, but the most important one of all of these is what? Love. Above all things. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And so love is the first and most important of these manward duties. And that brings us, of course, to understand the second great commandment. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And that's already been touched upon in the way that Peter presents prayer. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And now he gets to that one. So in a sense, he's touching upon the two great commandments in which all of the commandments are summarized, are they not? And what is the nature of the love that Peter has in mind? Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the Greek word agape, which is the one that Peter uses here. And that's a love that is volitional and active. It is a love of intelligence and purpose. Here we are again, intelligent love. You really can't do anything in the Christian life without using your mind. No wonder the devil tries so hard to turn Christianity into something that is more emotive than intellectual and volitional. He wants us to think that Christianity is primarily something you feel rather than something you think and something you do. But you see, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible presents just the opposite. And the kind of love that Peter has in mind is agape love, which is volitional love, which is active love. It's a love that can be commanded. Emotions can't be commanded. I can't command you to be sad, command you to be happy. Be happy right now. But I can command you to love. So your understanding of love has to be understood in the light of this. And this is certainly not the only place where love is commanded. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a command. Love can be commanded. We either obey it or disobey it. It has nothing to do with the way we feel. Not our Obedience to it has nothing to do with the way we feel. The way we obey will affect the way we feel, but let's not get the cart before the horse. It has to do with our obedience or disobedience. This love is purposeful. It is helpful actions to benefit another. And it is the love. The definite article is included in the Greek. It's not in our translation. The love, apparently the well-known love, the love that you're already aware of, the love that you have already experienced as a child of God. Now, that's the love I'm talking about. So above all things, have the fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. 
And how are we to exercise this love? And there's two words, two phrases that help us understand this. Number one, fervently. And number two, toward one another. Love one another fervently, deeply. That's a word that means stretch to full capacity. It's like an athlete that is stretching every muscle to get the maximum exertion and result out of his effort. Like a horse that is at full gallop and is, is stretching every muscle as he's trying to win a race. Love that is steadfastly pursued, that perseveres in the face of difficulties. And who are we to love? One another, those in the body of Christ. Our fervent love of this nature begins with one another. It begins with believers. It begins with the local church. This kind of love is for the purpose of promoting unity in the church and overcoming damaging behavior that occurs in the church because of our sinful nature. But you see, love covers the multitude of sins. I think what Peter is telling us, and we find similar injunctions elsewhere in the New Testament, that our, our responsibility to love is first toward the people of God and only secondly toward those who are outside the church. But, of course, we do have a love responsibility to those outside. We are to love our neighbor as ourself and many other instructions. But I think what Peter is telling us is if we will learn to exercise this kind of love within the church, we'll be well prepared to exercise it out in the world. If you can't exercise this kind of fervent, warm-hearted, volitional, active, purposeful love among believers who all know the Lord Jesus Christ and with whom you are related in the body of Christ and by the common spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ that joins us all together, if you can't exercise that very well here, then what makes you think you're going to be able to exercise it toward the lost in the world beyond? And Peter tells us the effect of this love. It covers a multitude of sins. And that also helps us to understand a great deal about its nature and exercise. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter is evidently quoting from Proverbs 10 and verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And just by, by quoting the original text in Proverbs 10:12 and getting the first part of the verse helps us to understand what Peter is talking about. The covering a multitude of sins that he's talking about is the opposite of stirring up strife. Stirring up strife is the opposite of love. It's the antithesis of love. That's hatred. But calming strife, healing strife, that's the exercise of love in the body of Christ. And we are to do this. Above all things, have fervent love for one another for or because love will cover a multitude of sins. This is the reason why fervent love must be maintained, because love will do more to repair breaches in the body of Christ than anything else we can do. In fact, it's impossible apart from the exercise of this love. This kind of love covers sins, not that it forgives sins toward God. Of course, that's impossible. But this kind of love ministers to those sins that have damaged our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. This is a love of action that is designed to minimize 
the destructive potential that's found within every church because we are saved sinners that make up the church. And therefore, we have the potential to destroy ourselves and to destroy the body. When attacks come upon the church, whether from without or from within, they cause great strain upon the body of Christ. But love will come to the rescue and not allow that strain to fragmentize and to destroy. This is not saying that love is blind to sin, but that love sincerely desires the welfare of others, even in spite of sin. Love does not unnecessarily expose the sins of others. Love does not gossip about the sins of others. Love does not desire to humiliate and injure other people because of their sins. Have you ever been in an uncomfortable situation where a husband or a wife, either one, wanted to tell a few things about their spouse and they were very inappropriate things to be telling to others? They were exposing the faults and failures of their spouse and using that to jab and to humiliate and to to destroy that person. And where that's going on, I can tell you that love is not being exercised. Because love doesn't do that. Love deals with sins biblically. And the Bible gives us many instructions for how to deal with sin. One of the most helpful is that well-known passage in Matthew 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, and so forth. The Bible teaches us over and over that we forgive one another because we are forgiven people. We forgive one another because Christ has forgiven us. Let's not forget that. And so love deals with sin, but it deals beneficially with sin. It doesn't deal with sin in such a way as to use it to hurt and damage and destroy, to expose, to tear down. But rather, it deals with sin always with the desire and motive that the sin will be removed and the damages and harm and the potential harm of sin will be erased. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what Peter's talking about here. Love covers the multitude of sins. When we love one another, many offenses can simply be ignored. Not every offense has to be dealt with. It can be covered in our minds, covered in our hearts, covered by our love one for another as we are actively engaging our mind to analyze that offense and see if it's serious enough to require some kind of further action on our part. And many offenses can simply be ignored, erased, and forgotten. If we're unable to do that, if, we, if an offense has occurred and we're not able to continue to relate positively toward that brother or sister in the light of that offense, then it is our responsibility to seek resolution. In Peter's day, Christians who had a contention 
a problem where somebody in the church couldn't get up and find another church. It's such an easy solution that so many people appropriate in our day so inappropriately and never fail to learn how to love one another in this way to cover the multitude of sins. And what are we talking about? The ingredients that will enable us to maintain vital, warm-hearted Christianity. And this is one of them. This maintains vital Christianity. And fail to love one another in this way deadens Christianity. It deadens our soul. It, it squeezes the joy and the spiritual life out of our soul. It, it get, makes us cold-hearted. and We don't even know what's wrong sometimes. We're trying to recover something with God. And maybe we have to recover something with our brother. And learn to love in this way. We are commanded to forgive one another. Lack of forgiveness seriously hinders our relationship with God, as we know. The question sometimes arises, but what if the the offender does not seek my forgiveness? If they do, we know that our only option is to forgive. We can't fail to do that. You know that, don't you? Jesus said in Luke 17, take heed to thyself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall say, after the third time, I don't believe it anymore. No, you shall say, you shall forgive him. If he asks you, you shall forgive him. We have no choice in that, and that's a matter of obedience. What if our brother doesn't seek our forgiveness? Then what is our position? After all, God doesn't forgive those who do not repent and seek his forgiveness, so are we supposed to do that? Well, this is a difficult question. I didn't leave as much time to deal with it as I'd like to, but I want to see it through, so bear with me patiently. Several things we need to keep in mind in a situation like this. Situations like this ought to remind us of our need to seek forgiveness of others when we are wrong. We can see how it affects us when someone wrongs us and doesn't seek forgiveness. May that be a stimulus whenever the Holy Spirit prompts us that we have done something wrong, that we will be humble and eager to seek forgiveness of others so that we don't don't carry out the same wrong that we believe they have done toward us. But in addition, we need to remember our own sinfulness. That should cause a great deal of humility. We ought to acknowledge our own proneness to blindness, blind spots. No, God doesn't forgive people until they confess their sins and seek his forgiveness, but God hasn't sinned either. And we have, and we do. And God has never, has no blind spots, and we do. So we better tread lightly here. We ought to be eager to address offenses, even if they seem to us relatively minor compared with that major offense that that person did toward us. And we need to seek understanding for our own part of the responsibility, however minor it may seem to us. It may turn out to be larger than we believe. And our posture should always be one ready to forgive and to maintain a forgiving heart at all times. Like the father of the prodigal son, he was just waiting for his son to return. He wasn't in the house 
gossiping about his son, tearing down his son, turning a cold shoulder toward his son, he was out every day scanning the horizon looking for his son to return. And that's the way we ought to be acting toward our brother, even those that have not sought our forgiveness. And we often need to approach the offender and gently revisit the offense. We talk about confronting one another in the light of Matthew 18. And I think sometimes that word confront scares us off and gives us an excuse maybe not to fulfill our duty before God. Confrontation doesn't have to be angry. In fact, probably shouldn't be. Very seldom should be. I don't know when it ever should be. It doesn't have to be a bull in a china shop approach. We need to humbly approach the offender and gently revisit the offense to talk about it. We must not carry a grudge when we are wronged. We must fervently strengthen ourselves in love to minister to the welfare of others. Let's take an example. Someone cuts you with an unkind remark, and they seem oblivious to it. What do you do? Well, if possible, you simply ignore it, maintain a warm-hearted relationship, and go on. If you find yourself unable to do that, you find yourself withdrawing from that person, avoiding that person, then I would suggest that you do a thoughtful, deliberately chosen act of kindness, active love. Agape love. Think of something that you could do to benefit that person and purposefully carry it out and see what the Lord may do with that. If the relationship is still strained, go and talk to them about the offense and endeavor to be reconciled and go with a humble attitude that you are willing to hear their complaint against you that you may not even be aware of. It may be that they weren't aware of their of your complaint against them. But maybe you're not aware of a complaint they have against you. So go with that humble spirit. Your desire is full restoration of fellowship, reconciliation. Your desire is not to be right and to prove them wrong. You see, love shapes the way we approach all these things. Love must be at the base of our motive in all of this. Love will shape the way we do these things, our attitude and our goal, what we're trying to accomplish. What you do not do is withdraw. What you do not do is stop speaking. Give them the silent treatment. Avoid contact. I'll show them. They'll, they'll see how I'm not talking to them and they'll understand how they've wronged me. That's entirely wrong. The Bible doesn't give us permission to do that. We do not retaliate. We do not gossip. We do not harbor resentment. but we deal with them in love. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And dear friends, I submit to you an active approach to those three areas will restore a warm-hearted devotion to Christ more than you can possibly realize. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, help us in our weakness, our frailty, our pride, our blindness. Help us, O oh Lord, in our love to you and our love to one another. All to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.